2: To me, like, the daimy is not just a chemical. It's a true sacrament. So it's a, it's a physical embodiment of a spiritual consciousness of, of seemingly infinite proportion. For us, when it's on it's literally bringing and in, it's incarnating the spirit of the Christ. the Christ.
0: The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James.
3: Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast, I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak to William Barnard, Professor of Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University and the author of the book, Liquid Light, Ayahuasca Spirituality and the Santo Daime Tradition. Professor Barnard has previously written books on William James and Henri Bergson. But in this latest work, he writes about his first-hand experience as an initiate in the syncretic Brazilian Church of the Santo Daime, which uses ayahuasca as a sacrament. This episode has been a long time coming. My experiences in the Santo Daime Church have played a huge part in the arc of my life since my first ceremony with them back around 2010, and I've been wanting to speak with someone about the Santo Daime since starting this podcast four years ago. But I wanted to make sure that it was someone who wasn't just approaching it from an academic or anthropological perspective. To know anything at all about the sento daimi, you have to drink daimi many times in different contexts. So in that respect, Bill is the perfect guest to discuss this complex topic. In our conversation, we speak a little bit about the history of the Santo Daimi, but mainly focus on the mystical aspects of the religion, which includes the practice of incorporating spiritual entities. Certainly a complex and unconventional practice for what is essentially a Christian religion. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Bill Barnard on The Medicine Path. Bill, thanks a lot for joining us today. Sure. My pleasure. Um, I I started this podcast in 2018, and a big part of what led me to begin the podcast and this exploration of what I call the medicine path, which I really feel is anybody's path of uh, growth and transformation and healing, uh, was my experiences in the Central Daimy Church. Uh, Mm -hmm beginning wow. back in about 2010. Um, and there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about Santo Daime or sing some of the hymns, yeah. even though it's been about uh, probably seven years since I've done an official work. Wow. So Santo Daime has got a very special place in my heart and I've wanted to talk about it on the podcast uh, you know, for the past four years.
2: So thank you. You're very welcome. I'm happy to talk about it
3: yeah well you've um just published a book called liquid light which i have here where you speak about your experiences in the central daimi and offer um some of your thoughts based on being a theologian is that right
2: well i'm a religious studies professor it's a slight difference Um, theologians are typically understood to be people who um are sort of restricted like so most, most theologians historically have been Christians who self-identify as Christians and then work within the Christian fairly exclusively Christian framework. Um, religious studies uh, professors are people who are more overtly often at least uh, comparative in their focus and certainly at least religiously neutral and even-handed there's no privileging of any one religious tradition. So it's just okay. like orientation.
3: Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate that distinction. Yeah. So why did you decide to write this book at this time?
2: Well, um, I actually decided to write it about 14 years ago. <laughs> it just took me that long to write it. Um so and I and I when I uh, I was actually doing a Santo D'Aime work, uh, which is the word they said it said translation of the Portuguese trabalho, which is what uh, in the Santo Dami we use to refer to the ceremonies of the Santo Dami. I was doing the Santo Dami work and I had been doing it, been participating in the Santo Dami just for my own spiritual interest and desire uh, for several years. And then it just became clear to me, it's like, oh, I have the training and it just felt like, like, there was just some inner sort of tug on the sleeve or a tap on the shoulder, however, whatever metaphor you want that just sort of said, hey, it seems like you should do this. <laughs> so I, I usually, I work hard to follow those inner inner nudges. And so I, you know, the first thing I needed to do was I sort of reached out to, there wasn't a lot that had been written about the Santo Dami. So I reached out to this one um, scholar who had written, a, an, at that point, an article about the Santo Daime and said, uh, any advice for me? I'm thinking about doing this. And he said, uh, well, you need to learn Portuguese. <laughs> and so that was my Is that, first
3: question. Uh, was that Aaron Dawson? Uh, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah.
3: Um, well, there was a book um, previous to yours, which when I got introduced to the Santo Daime, the person who introduced me to it said, yeah. okay, before you come to a work, read this book called forest divisions by alex polari oh. um, and i think it's since been republished uh, with under the title of religion of ayahuasca right
2: right mm-hmm. yep. yeah Yep. There, one it was the book that turned me on to the santo daimi as well hmm. you know um as i mentioned in the in, the, in liquid line
3: yeah yeah well i you know i think part of that is because there's such a um Strict policy against proselytizing in the yeah. Santo Daime, right? Like, do you think that's the main reason why more hasn't been written about it, particularly from the inside?
2: I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Because um, uh, I certainly don't think of this book as proselytization um, at all. It's really just an attempt to, because, you know, within the Daime, the Santo Daime tradition, it's fine to share about your experiences, but without any intent, like you say, to proselytize or to convert or to pressure anyone. So I just wanted to, I had been immersed in this tradition for so long that I, um, you know, was having powerful experiences and they made me really think even more deeply about the nature of consciousness, which had been the focus of my academic life for several decades. I mean, my first... To my first book was written on uh, William James, an American philosopher and psychologist who wrote arguably the first comparative text on mystical experience from a psychological standpoint, which was just brilliant and um, And then my second book was on Henri Bergson, who was a French philosopher and a close friend of William James, who was also deeply in um, Interested in the nature of consciousness, like James was, and uh, and and both of them were interested in altered states of consciousness and especially mystical experience, which was my focus as an academic. And so it's like when I began with the Santo Daimy to have pretty profound visionary mystical experiences on a fairly regular basis. You know, it, I I really wanted to. um, you know, think through some of the implications of what it meant to have these types of experiences um, for my own understanding of the nature of consciousness more generally. And just to be able to give people a, uh, a really vivid visceral sense of what it would be like from the inside and outside to take part in these different works. You know, so in some ways, I think of the book as a type of a literary mediumship in a sense, so it's like a way for people almost in and through m- me to sort of experience vicariously what it's like to be a dainista.
3: Hmm.
2: Someone who, a regular practitioner in the Santo tradition.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you described um, religious studies professor uh, being remaining neutral spiritually. So did yeah. you have any um, hesitations about writing from such a personal perspective in this book?
2: No, I didn't have any hesitations, but I knew I had to address that issue um, right up front, because I, as I mentioned in the introduction, in the book, I'm, I'm really, in, to my mind, consciously addressing three very distinct audiences. I'm addressing Fellow daimistas, people who are also on you know, regular participants in this path of uh, the Santo Daimy. Um, I'm addressing people who are just interested in psychedelics, especially psychedelic spirituality more generally. Um, and I'm addressing fellow academics, right? And there is some contention within re- this the field of religious studies about you know, the issue of objectivity, subjectivity, neutrality, all of these sorts of things have been really thought through. And I think it's safe to say that while it's not unanimous, that certainly at least most of the the religious studies people that I'm close to, um, there's there's sort of a, a, I think, an understanding, a pretty clear understanding that it is very possible, in fact, it's almost not possible to not have this that that a person can uh, be very reflexive about their own um self-location. in fact that that's really sort of needed to um that that any sort of pretense of absolute neutrality as if you're you're not a human being as if you're just sort of an invisible cipher is is really a pretense. It's not um and it's not accurate to where we are that we all bring our own issues our assumptions our view of the world our sense of ourselves into whatever we're writing and teaching and so that it's really good actually to be pretty transparent about that and so i that i had to sort of flesh that out a little bit and 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 yet to talk about also especially with this in in terms of this subject talk about the importance of um, writing from a first person standpoint especially when you're writing about the nature of consciousness because there's so there's such a tendency um and i think it has to do with a lot a lot to do with the prestige of the the hard sciences to um that that sort of the best way to write about something is from a third person distance perspective and and i tried to make a pretty strong case that um when you're talking about these types of topics about the nature, inner experience, you need to write from that place, right? Not just from some sort of removed distance. And so mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, I think it definitely uh, gives the writing um, some more gravitas, maybe, you know, that you're someone who's been in on the inside, had these experiences yourself, and yeah. So I appreciate it. And I, I, I noticed like in the book, how carefully you walk that line and you're very careful about it, explaining explaining uh, if something is your uh, subjective experience and things like that. Yeah. Did you, did you receive any um, kind of uh, resistance from fellow daimistas when you talked to them about writing this book? Was anyone kind of critical of you doing
2: that? Um, at first there was, there was, um, uh one person for sure who got a little reactive uh, he had only read a, a couple of early excerpts from a couple of chapters and you know um but i was really careful um i ended up because i wanted this to be this is very much my book in terms of i want to own responsibility forever you know whatever it, so no one else is <laughs> to blame so to speak for the book um but it was a very much a collaborative work too in the sense that i shared numerous editions and of the manuscript with people not only with other demeses but also other scholars and trying to again sort of get feedback and and suggestions and um and so the, i really benefited a lot from that and and with with the and so the Daimistas that I knew, I mean, one of the most important readers of the book was this fellow Daimista, who was also a well-trained in religious study. So he was able to sort of bridge those two. And he gave careful, careful readings of it. And very thoughtful, very heartfelt, and gave me extensive feedback. And it was just so, I so much appreciated it. And then actually, um, there was a um, we actually have a sort of a, a national organization here in in the in North America that they they created a what they called a media committee um not just for my book, but there was a media committee that was already actually I think it was already um, put together. but they took on the job of reading the book and sort of vetting it. I wasn't I was very clear though I said i'm I'm not looking for censorship and they didn't really do that they were really and they they just read it and actually were extremely supportive and um you know one member of that committee all was gave me extensive very helpful uh feedback as well more on the style of it actually than anything else and um so i very much appreciated the feedback i got on on the whole um and even that that um that one person I think ended up coming around. Here's hoping because he's a good mm-hmm. friend of mine. So mm-hmm. and that, that's the thing, right? The, these people are friends of mine. And they're people that I've I have i have known and shared amazing experiences with. And um, so you know, when I'm writing this, I'm wanting to tell, and I talk about this, I, I'm you know, sort of a warts and all view of the Santa I mean, Dami. I don't want to produce some sort of i think some you know some people may have hoped that i was going to produce this really sort of fit for public consumption sort of like polished you know like here's this idealized sort of religious group and I, and to me as a religious scholar and as a, and someone for someone to take me seriously it's like it's like no no it's like this is a real robust human religion meaning that it's got all sorts of people that with differing opinions and there's it's a it's it's a living um tradition that's not by, by any means idealized and it's it's it, it it's it's a it's a full three-dimensional religious tradition <laughs> and, and i wanted to depict that in in all of its robustness right in the book and mm-hmm. also too right and so it's like we, we sometimes it's sometimes I, I i write about this also that some of the other um there have been some books written on on the santo Daime. I mean, certainly and certainly there's a there's there's a lot of academic work on um ayahuasca religions more generally especially in south america um and it most of that though is from an anthropological perspective and a lot of it's just of course in portuguese but but a lot of there's some in english and uh <laughs> when you read it you like wonder like Used to, I, I I would often say to myself I know lots of these people I know they've drank a lot of ayahuasca or daimy. but you would never know it from reading what they're, because they're so they're trying so hard to be quote unquote objective and there's a type of rhetoric that's that's very sort of um I hate to say it's sort of dry, this is academic writing, you know, that I know very well, and I'm fine with, and there's, and it's, for me as a scholar, I'm, I'm, it's, it's actually very helpful, you know, it's talking about, you know, the legal issues or the economic issues or the you know political issues all these sort of things that people are interested in understandably but i'm interested in the nature of consciousness i'm interested in like who we are under the surface and who we could become as human beings and those more philosophical or metaphysical or normative questions are what really tried my interest mm-hmm. so yeah and,
3: and yeah one of the things about the central dynamic too like that um i find fascinating is that it's a fairly new religion that, uh, like you said, is alive and is continually evolving. Um, so it's kind of impossible to speak about it as one thing. Um, Good point. If the daimi is anything, it's a, it's a reflection of Brazilian culture and that it's very syncretic.
2: It's very eclectic Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, alive. Oh no for sure and, and like i say multifaceted there's lots of streams of the santo Daime, and and it's very especially uh the lineage that i belong to that was uh, carried on by patrino sebastiano after the death of uh, Mestre irineo the founder of the religion um he was very syncretistic and very eclectic very open to all these influences from different streams of of religiosity but but the original was too i mean mr irineo combined basically folk catholicism and indigenous religion and you know just to, to a, an esoteric traditions and eastern traditions because he was um he had his whole group for about six years maybe seven years um affiliate with this um a type of sort of theosophical organization that was very prominent, as far as I know, may still be prominent in Brazil called the Esoteric Circle of the Communion of Thought, which was sort of a um, an attempt in, in, in Brazil to, you know, bring, weave together lots of influences by, you know, Madame Blavatsky and Steiner and anthropos- Anthroposophy and, and uh, Theosophy and, and as well as people like Yogananda and, and uh, Vivekananda and and the, the sort of the more Eastern yogic traditions and so that was even there for in, from the very get go in the daimy but then you got Virginia Sebastiao, who added all sort you know basically brought in mediumship was the real issue um, and and especially uh, through the spiritist line which he was part of and then. He was very welcoming when um, this woman named bashinya who was a uh, was called a Maiji Santo of a, of an Umbanda tradition, which is sort of a itself classically, as you put, classically Brazilian syncretistic movement that combines Catholicism and Spiritism and, and African religiosity, and it's a mediumistically based tradition. Uh, it, she, he welcomed her very beautifully and powerfully into the Santo Daime religion, and uh, so there's this all these streams of, it. and so and so you, you have different people that resonate with different um, different aspects of that, and then you've got this extremely potent sacrament, which that's for us what the Daime is is a sacrament. It's not even a, I mean, of course it is medicinal. It's very. I mean, powerfully and beautifully medicinal. Um, But for us, it's a sacrament, right? It's a way to commune with the divine. And so it's an agent of revelation, of ongoing revelation. So it's not with the daimy that you're just having to sort of refer back to some ancient text of when way back when in some other culture, some other, some people you don't even know had these profound visionary experiences. You begin to have them yourself, right? And all your friends begin to have them. And it's like a shared world of visionary slash mystical experience. And that's not all what the daimy is. I used to think that was the major focus, but really it's also a very devotional path you know it's it's really it's these received hymns that are you know and it's where everyone's singing together and uh and hopefully with a lot of heart and sometimes it can be literally ecstatic
3: mm-hmm. and, yeah well um that you know i think that speaks to uh that quality of aliveness uh of the tradition so one of the things that's really unique about the Santo Daime is that the doctrine is held in a whole collection of of hymns of yeah. songs yeah. that have been received by members since the beginning, yeah. and uh, continue to be received. And yeah. so members I- of local churches will start to receive their own hymns, which then get incorporated into the the larger doctrine. Yeah. And that I mean, there's something uh, Quaker-like about that, where everybody has the potential to be a channel for this doctrine, which is yeah. very yeah. egalitarian, and uh, I yeah. found it just incredibly
2: refreshing. Oh, me too, and and you know, and so the, what you have with the dime the Santo, uh, I make a distinction in the book, and it's just, it's uh it's just sort of a. It's just for convenience sake i i, I make this entry that we use the word "dime" to refer to the sacrament itself and, the, and then i use the term santo dime" to refer to the tradition most daimistas sort of mix and match that but um but i'll try to be a little more consistent with that so like in the in the santo Dime tradition you're right you know it's it's um there are lots of uh people who've received hymns and the receiving of these hymns is very mysterious and very beautiful, um, and it's part of this this process where you you don't consciously cre- seek to create a hymn. You literally, like you said, you receive it, and um, and and so like at this point, I've received about not about I've received thirty six hymns. Um, and I write about this in the end of the book, what it's like to receive hymns, because no one's, as far as I know, no one's ever written about that. Hmm. And um, it is a really fascinating process, because on the one hand, it doesn't come at all from the ego. There's no will, there's no forcing, there's no intentionality behind it. You literally, it's like, it feels like I'm taking dictation or something. It's all, they often they often come to me in dreams, or there's just sort of a almost like a download that happens. Um, And yet, I'm always struck that how each person's hymns, set of hymns, has a particular sort of energetic cohesiveness to it. They, They really sort of reveal who that person is. So to me, my hymns, for example, are very pure expressions of the depths of my being. You know, even though I had nothing to do with creating <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of a paradoxical fascinating paradoxical uh, process that happens.
3: yeah well it's like um, you know you said that the central is uh, multifaceted and one of the ways it's multifaceted is like what we talked about where everybody who's involved with it is another facet of this yeah. kind of we could think of it as a jewel or a crystal. And so the divine light then passing through that gets refracted in different ways depending on what your particular facet is made of or what it uh, looks like, right? That's a
2: beautiful way to think about it. I love it, because, especially because in the dynamic, we talk about a lot about a lot of the hymns speak about the way it calls the crystal light or the crystal light, you know? And so it's a, that same sort of notion of, a, and I'm always, I even talk about this in the book, even the visionary experiences seem to be often angular like as if it's the refractions of of light you know and, I, and i've noticed there's a sort of an angularity about even sometimes even about the bodily postures that happen during mediumship which is another component at least of our lineage of the santo daimi because again like that's what Padre sebastiao was sort of brought in the there wasn't really mediumship per se in early Santo daimi
3: yeah, well, I, I definitely want to talk about that because it's a very intriguing aspect uh, of the tradition. But just to um, speak to what you said about receiving hymns, I received a hymn, and it was uh, you know the first hymn I received was like the day after a work, yeah. and I, I was down at a friend's house uh, down in Oregon, and I was taking a shower. And as the water was hitting me all of a sudden this song came into my head. Yeah. And it was like you said it wasn't something that I I wrote but it was something that I actually had to learn like it it came like fully formed. Yeah. And then yeah. I had to learn it and I had to figure out oh these are the guitar chords that go uh-huh. with it. Yeah. And and it was something that you know I've had to Live with in terms of understanding the content of that hymn, actually. Yeah. So oh, in yeah. that way, it does feel truly received from oh, yeah. someplace other than my ego. That's a, that's as much as I'll say about it. Whether that comes from you know up there or it's like an oh. upload from the heart is sometimes yeah. the way I think of it.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, and for me, like I'm I'm really pretty much a terrible musician. Um, I have almost no melodic memory. My rhythm, my rhythmic ability, is very much a work in progress, you know. And so I just sing, sing the melodies into my iPod. My, I'm sorry, my iPhone, and that's that's been the real grace for me. And, and, and actually, when I started there, I didn't have an iPhone, and so I just, my just a little tape recorder I carried around. And um, thank God for that, or you know, I'd be lost. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, it's a fascinating process, right? Because it feels like it, they're, if they're really received there for me specifically, the messages, the teachings, but it also feels like it's kind of a broader um, potential, at least message or outreach, you know, so that, you know, if other people get a chance to hear them, hopefully they'll resonate with them as well, right? You know mm-hmm. right. So.
3: Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, uh you've talked about the history of the central Daimy on uh Soul Speaks podcast and other, you know, I've heard other people speak about it. I think it's fairly commonly known, or at least the information is readily available. Yeah. So rather than kind of go over that again, what I'm really interested in talking with you about today is um the the creation of different lines, like we've oh. already alluded to. Oh. And um the, maybe the differences between them um and you know i think there's like new lines continually being created or kind of new uh what's the word like evolutions of the work as yeah. it um comes yeah. to different places around the world and and i find that just incredibly fascinating yeah me
2: too yeah no it's it's a uh, you know um just so that you know your listeners can know i mean I've created a website also for the book. It's called liquidlightbook.com. Um, and on that website, I do um I do uh try I have like for instance a very focused, to me, very focused as a scholar biography of mastery that I wrote, or you know, at least a maybe biography is a little too formal a term, but it's it's a concise, focused description of the major um, issues uh, that surrounded, that you know, what happened during his life in the context in which his, his life unfolded and the teachings. Um, and I'm going to have another one uh, for Pedrinho Sebastial that, God willing, will um, happen, you know, hopefully in a few months, be finished with that. Um, uh, and, and I also have there something called, liquid, uh, I'm sorry, Santo Daimi 101, which gives you the real bedrock basics of the teachings and the ritual practice and the history of the Santo Dimi So yeah, all that's easily, you know, accessible. And so, so you're right. I just wanted to, like, right, that's, that, that website's a really good resource for that. Um, and... Yeah, I would, I'd be happy to talk about it. and now it gets oh, really complicated. Sorry Bill. What's the
3: URL of your website? Cuz yeah, um it's probably a great place for people to go where all that information's collected and oh. and not in poorly translated Portuguese, right? Exactly. That's Helpful. the thing.
2: It, yeah, it's, it's it's liquidlightbook.com. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And um so yeah, it's uh, it is, I mean, I don't know of another, you know, it, uh, you know, a lot. I won't. I won't claim that 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 mastery's biography is, is breaking any new ground. It's not like there's this beautiful book um, in Portuguese called El Vinho de Longe, which is this massive, incredibly well researched uh, biography. That's a that's a real biography of mastery, but it's in Portuguese and it's huge. And you know, so I what I tried to do is to gather together all these resources, like you said, from you know, these different Portuguese sources and and tried to just, like, cut down, like, like in my mind, the essentials of, of his life, which is just fascinating, and, and doing the same thing with Sebastial Sebastiao. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, so hopefully it'll be a resource, I think, especially for Dionysius. But if anyone got happened to get wanted to know more about the, the Santo Dime, uh, the history of it, that's hopefully going to be an ongoing resource that'll just keep getting better.
3: (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Well, and while we're um, speaking to that too, if people are interested in the hymns of Santo Daime, a friend of mine, um, Ben Ben Tobias from Seattle has created a website called Nosa Irmandaji, which is an incredible resource for people interested in
2: the music of Santo Daimi. Oh gosh. And thank you, Ben. (laughs) Yeah. You've been. I mean, that's you're right. It's like an amazing resource for the hymns of the Santa Diamond.
3: Yeah. Great. Well, let's talk about Pedrinho Sebastião, who is the founder of, I guess, the line that you've been most involved with, right? And uh, also, all the works that I was involved with uh, followed that particular line, too. And um, it has some things that do distinguish it from kind of. uh, uh, I hate these words, but like the original line of Mestre Irineu which uh I believe is called Alto Santo.
2: Alto Santo. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah.
3: And so uh let's just talk about that. So when did um Sebastiao come on the scene? Oh
2: my goodness. Um I'm I'm so bad with dates, but let's say uh oh uh, my goodness. Um I think in the this... Just early sixties, maybe I can look that up um but yeah, he came in sort of as 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 the history of the daimy goes somewhat late onto the scene in that the first work of the Santo Dimi officially was in nineteen thirty right so there's at least like probably around th- over three decades before um Sebastiao Sebastial shows up, and so that was that itself was sort of is significant in that. You know there were people that were real long time deeply dedicated deeply devoted uh disciples of mestadi Irineo that had been with him for a long time and here this guy comes in, and Paginus Sebastiao was um already himself before making the Daimy a spiritist uh medium and healer, and he had been trained um in the way in the middle of the amazon uh rainforest by this one spiritist medium and healer called the Mestre Os, osvaldo who um was the, literally i mean he he Gene Sebastiao heard about him and had to like i think travel like a day or two in the, in a canoe to try to find find this guy you know and um and then became basically sort of an apprentice with him and finally Mestre osvaldo basically told Padrino Sebastial, and he wasn't Pedrinho Sebast. Pedrinho is an honorific, you know, so he told Sebastião uh, hey, your spiritual calling is in Rio Branco, you know, and, and really encouraged him to leave the forest and to go to this, you know, from our perspective, a fairly rustic capital city of Acre, but but still, you know, a city, and, and Pedrinho Sebastial had been raised all of his life way in the middle of the rainforest. Mm-hmm. And,
3: uh, oh, and just to orient orient people listening, uh, Acre is a, a province of Brazil, up in the northwest corner?
2: A state, yeah, a it state. used to be a province, and now it's a state. And uh, yeah, far northwest, right on the edge of Peru and Bolivia. And um,
3: so kind of the heart of ayahuasca in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly. that because that's where Mestre Irineo's, um church began was in a in 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 on the outskirts of Hebron. and um, so he ended up Pagenius Pastel ended up um, um joining with basically his 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 wife's extended family and 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 started farming, but but he also began to be. He brought that healing and mediumistic um, um expertise and charisma into that, into that sort of extended family situation. And so was already himself a very um respected and loved healer. Um, but he he came down with uh this very mysterious and very um um intense and and long-lasting disease uh, that was really difficult for him to to work with and for his family to work with. And it was just very debilitating. And so he ended up, he tried all these different, you know, standard medical options, but he ended up, it didn't work. And so he um, ended up going to Mestre Irineo because Mestre Irineo was known as a world-class healer. And that's how, that's how most of his, of his, the original disciples came to him because, for healing and, 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 and stayed because he healed them. And, um, because this is a world that, you know, standard medicine is just, it's not really, you don't have a lot of doctors and nurses and, you know, you have some, but not much. And um, so, he came and they he did he did his first santo Daimy work um with with mastery and um had a very very powerful out-of-body experience where these uh what they call these spirit doctors these doctors that literally like with white robes and things appeared to him and, and um cut him open and extracted three insects or you know um Parasites or something from his liver, and then sewed him back up together. You know, sewed him back together, and then he came back to his body and he was completely healed just instantly. And he became a hardcore Daimista disciple of Mastodineo. By hardcore, meaning that his community where he was living, they he would Pajina Sebastian would have to walk like, oh my gosh, I think three or four hours to get to Mastery's place and then do a work and then walk back hmm. in the middle of the night, you know, three or four hours. And soon he began to, you know, his, his, you know, he had, he had a large family of his own. His his sons and daughters began, to, and his wife began to attend and then, and then their you know, aunts and uncles, and then neighbors. And so he began to bring in this very large group of people regularly they're all walking through sweating and you know i mean it's it's a, an amazing thing very regularly because <laughs> they were really impressed with this man and this path and the healing and the light and the love that was available in it and um soon pedrini sebastia uh, you know he again wasn't pedrini Sebastio at that point he was just Sebastio uh received permission from Mestri very very quickly to, to make his own daimy and was taught how to make the daimy, which is a whole process. And um and this was not a thing that Messri did very lightly. And um so that because he knew that he had to the community had to walk so often. So he wanted them to come for the big festival, what they call the festival works, the dance works, but so they could do their own healing works and the smaller sort of like more concentration works with their own community. And um, so Pedrinho Sebastial began, then then it started becoming Pedrinho Sebastial because he was the leader of his community and he started to receive these beautiful hymns. And um, people began to, he had a whole set of musicians that would, would come. And so, when and, and he would always meet with Mestri and they have these beautiful conversations and there was a very close rapport with him and pagina sebastiao was very charismatic and so when Mestri died it's always a big issue when you have a religion what happens when the founder dies mm-hmm. and this is a complicated story because um maestri had left a, a a person um leoncio gomez to as as the person that would sort of keep running the works but he but but from mastery standpoint i'm still running the works from what they call from the astral from <laughs> above right and this guy was job was basically just to keep things going you know um he wasn't like a successor per se right and you know there was a sort of an Vandrinus mm-hmm. Bastio kept coming, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to make a, I mean, it's a very complicated story, but it, um, one of the key issues was uh, at some point, Leoncio uh, basically tried to sort of control, like basically say, really all the, we we here at, at at this, at our church, need to be the people that are controlling all the production of the Santo Dime of, of the Dime as a sacrament. Basically, saying that you know you can't do it anymore, Paginia and Sebastio, and Pajenia Sebastio. Well, mystery gave me the permission to do. Who are you to take it away? And I mean, again, a lot more complicated than that, but mm-hmm. just maybe sort of the essence of it. And and so there, at some point, there was a a split that happened. Not totally, you know, full of animosity, but also not, of course. You know it was a hard split. not with the blessing yeah yeah it was a hard split right and 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 but genius sebastiel began to welcome these uh, new arrivals there were basically hippies coming in from uh, they call them uh sort of like mochilios i think is that is the portuguese word uh backpackers or, or long hairs and mm-hmm. uh, that would come to the to because the, they they were sort of on, um, they they'd begun to hear about Pedrino Sebastiao, they were like heading to Machu Picchu and things like this, and sort of on this began to almost be on the circuit. And uh, and he was very welcoming of these people, whereas the people in Alto Santo were not so they're so welcoming for new from new people from what they call from the south, from meaning from Rio Branco and from Rio, from Rio,
3: right, from the cities,
2: Colorado, yeah. Whereas Mystery, uh, Puginio Sebastiao was. And so there began to be, a, again, sort of a much more opening towards all sorts of influences from that these people brought in. And because Pajini Sebastiao was very open-minded, very, and, and, and actually that community, he began to be really run almost in a purely communistic way, meaning that they decided to just, everyone pooled their resources so that no one owned anything or everyone owned everything and it was all sort of a communal process and so um it was really uh, they're following this man and then he um at some point felt the guidance to move from the outskirts of Rio Branco way into the middle of the rainforest where where he had come from to begin with so they and uh and that's a whole amazing story because it was so, you know, they just basically, they got permission from this one um, Brazilian institution. They found some land and they looked to make sure no one owned it. And they got the, you know, this this called INCRA um, said, yes, you can, you guys can, you know, develop this land. And so they spent like three years building buildings. I mean, very rustic buildings, but, you know, and trying to you know get it just set up for rubber tapping and and farms and things like this. And and they had a whole outbreak of malaria. I mean, it's really intense, right? And then just as they're sort of beginning to settle down, this uh, farmer from the south says, oh, by the way, they were wrong. That's my land. And they were wrong. <laughs> they, that Brazilian bureaucracy just did not, was not the best. And so they had to get up and take every and leave and go to a completely new location, which ends up being what's called Sal du where this, this the location that I really focused the majority of the book on my experiences in. Um, and again, having just sort of hack it out of the dense rainforest with literally machetes and just like basically you know uh 40 families coming in there and just with enormous courage and dedication it's just like oh my god following this one man Mm -hmm. right and his vision and trusting him yeah just to give you a sense of how charismatic
3: yeah 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 he definitely uh has a presence that's for sure i remember the the first work i went to uh i didn't know much about this tradition uh, as way of introduction, the person who introduced me sent me a video that was taken from uh, Brazilian television. It was like this little TV documentary that was done on Santo daini and oh. it was all in Brazilian Portuguese, yeah. obviously, and no uh, translation. But I could see kind of like yeah. what the ritual looked like, and I thought, well, this is quite interesting and strange. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know a whole lot about it because there was just no information and not a lot on the Internet at that time. Yeah. Uh, but when I went to my first work at that time, I had a, a pretty long beard.
2: yeah.
3: And when I walked in, I remember one young guy kind of turned and watched me come in and his eyes lit up now I'd, I'd come in late to the work so they had already had their first serving of daimy. <laughs> and yeah. uh so he sees me walking with this long yeah. beard and his face just like lights up and he smiles and and nods knowingly at me <laughs> and, and then of course later i find out that uh this very prominent figure in the Santo of daimi padrino sebastiao is yeah. known for his like long beard right yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. i think i think the guy was kind of seeing me as a <laughs>
1: some
3: follower of sebastiao or, or something yeah, who yeah, knows what he right. was seeing but
2: <laughs> i can totally see that yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs>
3: now oh. um you know this is one of the things that's fascinating about santo Daime is that uh like you said it was very um it, it's not just about the the ritual and the doctrine and all of that but it's also like a social movement yeah. That's a big component of it, right? And so the founding of uh Mapia, like people could maybe understand it as a kind of uh spiritual eco community in yeah. the middle of the Amazon jungle, right? So yeah. you've been there. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to go there? I think maybe in the nineties was your first
2: time or oh no, much later. I, I got there in two thousand ten. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, um, so, um, and and it's changed for my, I haven't been back since. Um, I was there for almost three months and that's the summer of 2010. And, um, you know, when I went there, you you had to, and and this may still be the the case, you had to get a, um, rent a canoe basically and a motorized canoe with a little tiny mm-hmm. motor in the back, and you just go up this uh, tributary of the Amazon, which is probably three hundred feet wide. I mean, it's just huge, and uh, you very quickly just get out of the that you, you leave from this little town called Rio uh, um, Branco. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, from um, Boca do Acre, uh, which means Mouth of Acre, um, little tiny frontier town. And uh you're quickly out of that town, and you're just like for eight hours, surrounded by the Amazon rainforest, and uh, the last four hours because uh, you, you zip onto this little tributary tributary of this called um, uh, Igarape Mapia, which which is what the the little village is named after um. And you have that like for four hours, so so it's uh and it's just just like you're you're just like, surrounded by just you know forest. I mean it's very close in because the tributary is a lot smaller, and um, you know so then I, so I got there like just before uh, dark, and um, with with you know about five other people and and. Didn't really have an idea where I was going to stay, uh, you know. Luckily, this one woman had been there before that was on the boat, and she, 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 and she spoke Portuguese, and and a Brazilian woman, and 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 we had, uh, you know, talked to her ahead of time, so she went up there and arranged for us to place to stay, and you know. So then here I am in this, it, um, basically, sort of at an inn, right? But very, very rustic. There's no electricity. There. The only electricity they have is generators, which are actually gasoline powered and actually pretty loud. That would Mm -hmm. in the main city square, you know, um, where they had just a handful of little, little tiny stores. Um, But, you know, there's houses all around and it's actually very beautiful. And um, um, gosh, I mean, I was, I probably lost 15 pounds when I was there. And it wasn't because I was eating well but i was just walking all the time and just doing all these work we did works probably oh my gosh sometimes almost like every three third day or something you know Mm -hmm. and um and And very works you know yeah and you're sweating constantly sweating constantly it's it's really hot and um you know it's uh so and it's sort of disorienting um and you know of course you're adding time into the mix and it's very like you know you're just like it's a quite it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life and also one of the most challenging it was really rigorous and um um so I was, I'm so happy I was able to go there. And that's why I chose to write about it because I felt like it was just sort of, it's sort of like the mecca of our line, you know, to go there and so to really be able to meet, you know, all the elders, well, not all, but I mean, lots of the really significant elders and spend time with them and do works with them and um, get a sense of what that community was like. And, uh, you know, it's by that, by, by this time, by that, by 2010, you know, they had a pretty beautiful, big um, wooden, you um, church that was that was built in the shape of a six-pointed star and um made just from the hardwoods made by hand by these people in the hardwoods of the forest and um ended up that after I left that they had to tear it down because it was because of termites. And so then you know the last few years the people there have been just meeting in a large tent which is like oh my gosh it just oof Anyway, and they're building this amazingly beautiful architecturally rendered huge, you know, church as well, that they're still in the process of, again, COVID and all that. But but anyway, it was a very amazing uh, experience. It was very intense and uh, very beautiful and very challenging.
3: you know, for an ayahuasca retreat or for tourism, uh, can really picture your experience being on the little canoe and heading yeah. down the tributaries and going under branches and over yeah. logs and exactly. uh you know arriving on some riverbank and not quite sure knowing what you're getting yourself into, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like at this time, 2010, like you said, that's pretty that's pretty recent and pretty late in the development of Mapia. So um, it sounds like it's kind of grown into a a town. Yeah. Now, is everyone there involved with Santo Daimi or has it attracted um, non-Daimistas?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. It's a bit of both. Um, It started off, of course, anyone that was that would be there is, is by default a Daimista. But you know, at this point, for instance, they, they were able to get some funding from the Brazilian government, you know, and the whole place was was turned into a, basically a, all the land surrounding it was 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 made into like, I think like a national forest or preserve or something. And, and they got permission to stay there and be almost like caretakers of this, and hence the Echo Village sense. And they got some other money to um, like, so for instance, the school there, is quite up to date and quite modern, and and you know, literally with com- computers and and what have you. And so, if you can imagine, if you were in some little village on the way on the outskirts, and you hear about this, of course, you'd want to send your children to that school. And and then people, you know, say, oh, well, you got you know several hundred people there. Maybe I can sell things to them. And and I, so, little stores began to pop up so you have um i'd say i would say of course the majority of the people there uh, are Daimistas, um but you do have a a, a you know still a significant presence of other people who really don't care that much about about the the as a path um so that's produce, you know that produces, of course some sort of tensions and cuz they have different priorities and things and uh so yeah, again, part of the lived reality of of the Santo Daimi tradition is that sort of the sort of the uh, social uh, complexities of, of this the sale de Mapia. Mm-hmm.
3: Any idea what the population of Mapia is?
2: Mm, I'm guessing 600, 800 people, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and they're people that it's a. Uh, you know there are a lot of people you know there's some some cattle and there's some fields but really a lot of the people make their living from people outside of the village coming to visit to do works especially for the festivals and things so people own, you know have uh, um also like lodging houses and things like this right and so mm-hmm. it's a it's sort of an interesting symbiotic e- economy there in that way um and so I think that COVID was hard for them. I mean, again, I haven't been there, but I can only imagine because that it had to be shut down so no visitors could come in. Right. Uh, it may still be shut down as far as I know.
3: Hmm. Great. Thanks for that. Just helping us uh, kind of paint a picture yeah, yeah. of uh, what this kind of mythical, like Mecca-like places. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I have friends who went there in the 90s where I think it was quite different, uh, more like what people would imagine as a, uh, kind of south american eco-village or something
2: but uh yeah Yeah, fascinating it's not huts on on stilts which i sort of thought it would be um you have some very small you know sort of very poor huts and things but mostly a lot at this point these are really self-sufficient very practical down to earth people and so they've they've built some pretty nice homes for especially the elders um and 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 they even have a radio station there, and that was that was a blessing for me because I have a huge antenna that would so I could actually Skype with my wife during the whole time I was there. And that was such a, oh my god that was so helpful. It kept our marriage going. <laughs> you know, it gets hard, right, to be separated for three months without it. So at least I could literally talk to her and hear, and she could talk to me and hear me every day.
3: Oh, that's yeah I remember um the longest stint I spent in the Amazon was 2 months and uh I remember having to hike up to the top of the 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 highest hill in the yeah. area where there was an opening to the sky to try yeah. and get a good enough cell reception to even send a text message to let my yeah. wife know that I was doing okay and you know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah it's amazing yeah, yeah um well I'd like to get back to uh, Sebastiao and uh the kind of the innovations or changes that that lineage brought in, because to me, Sebastiao was like, uh, really responsible for Santo Diami spreading out into the world. Yeah. One, because like you said, he was so welcoming of outsiders coming in, yeah. uh, where they might have their first introduction to Santo Diami, And then some of them, uh, I guess he granted them the permission to to bring it back to their homelands and start up these little yeah. um, fledgling churches wherever they're from and yeah. uh, one of those people I've met a person who brought it to the United States was so Jonathan Goldman. Church who well, i know you did your first work with yeah. so that's like uh, if people experience Santo daime outside of brazil generally they're gonna be experiencing something like what's uh common in the pedrinho sebastiao lineage right is that fair to say
2: i think so mostly you know i mean most of the uh churches certainly in uh north america were uh, a lot of them were started by for instance uh, this one elder uh, Paginio Paulo Roberto who was a psychologist down in um in Rio Rio, Branco, uh, Rio, Rio de Janeiro um, um, and uh he ended up married one of Paginio Sebastião's daughters became a Angelina Nonata and Paulo Roberto um a very um a, in his own right sort of charismatic figure was started one of the very first churches in the south in 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 rio um and it's called sail dumar and um he ended up also um carrying daimi into united states with you know being invited by different people to come in and began to lead works and just sort of it was all sort of wild wild west back then you know just you know because you know to really run a santa daimi work you you ideally should have a lot of people that are very experienced, that know the hymns, that know how to care for other people. And here he was having just sort of basically pour dime into people and just handle it on his own. I and mean, God bless him. And uh, but he's the, the sort of constitution that could do that sort of thing. It's acting sort of like a St. Paul to open all these churches. And, and like I think he said, again, Jonathan was also very influential. And, and there's several people that. Um, that but in the early days, like, as you mentioned here in, in North America, it was really um it took a while, but now you know, to get things sort of settled and where people could be really firm and um and it's the same in Europe. I mean Paginio Alfredo, who was Pinho Sebastiano's uh um, successor is one of his sons, um was really instrumental in setting up the churches there and here in the United States as well. Um, you know, as well as, as another son, Pagino uh, Valdeci. And then you know, you've know got other other people, like you mentioned, Pajinio Alex Polari, who wrote that book that you mentioned, the, the Forest Divisions, which became the Religion of Ayahuasca, also very influential. Um, so, you have all, you began to have these tours of these elders that would come come around and, and go to different churches and help to sort of anchor them and get them, you know, more solid and, and really show them by example, you know, what it meant to be a real Santo Daime church. And then a lot of people would go to Brazil and begin to see that and bring that back. And so, a, a lot of cross pollination was happening. And that's sort of the growth of the Santo Daime in, in the West.
3: Um, Mm -hmm. yeah i I did a work when alex polari and his wife were visiting up in the u.s um, and it was incredible because he i mean he was uh, i believe a social activist who had uh, been in prison for his activism uh um and then like when i met him okay he had the long white beard like he looked Uh like a wise and bold sage Uh and he really brought a, a strong kind of um buddhist vibe mm-hmm. to the yeah. whole work like yeah, lots yeah. of silence like really deep meditations mm-hmm. with the lights mm-hmm. out with the daimi which yeah. was uh which was great for me as a kind of naturally inclined mystic and yogi type yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. i really enjoyed the opportunity to do that uh mm. yeah so part of like the with the um elders kind of going on tour or going around is um they're helping to keep these fledgling churches kind of in line too, right? Like mm-hmm. I remember a lot of correction of how the hymns were sung yeah. or uh, yeah. pronunciations and things like that.
2: Oh, for sure. And it's like I think I, I I don't know if I I forget whether I end up including this in the book, but I'll just say it for sure. I, um, you know, Dymistas care care a lot. About them. Well, let me, let me rephrase. Dymistas actually don't care too much about what you believe. There isn't, of course, there's this notion of the doctrine, but the doctrine is sort of like more like the energetic matrix of the daimy, you know. And and there are teachings, as you mentioned, teachings through the hymns and things like this. But there's no catechism, there's no pope, there's sort of like people like, oh, you need to believe this, you know. There's a lot of flexibility for what you believe. So, but daimies care a lot about ritual protocol. A lot. <laughs> you know, like, so they want those works to be run correctly, you know, and from there. And, and of course, people being human, there's often different understandings of what it means to run <laughs> a <to> work correctly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, as they put it in the, in the, in the Santo Dime tradition, it's from one of Mestre Irineo's it, hymns. A, it's a fine study, Studio Fino. You know, mm. it's, uh, it's something to be really examined carefully, that that issue, because <laughs> you, know, you don't want to get it too rigid, but at the same time, you don't be too lax either. So you want to have it sort of be welcoming and loving, but also really disciplined. That's, I think, the sort of ideal Santo Dami work. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are sort of turned off by it because there is a type of a, you know, people wearing uniforms, you know and for a dance work everyone's standing in line you stand in your place you know there's a lot of emphasis on staying in your place and staying firm and there's a type of almost military uh, uh, military vibe to it in a sense of like we're soldiers of the queen of heaven you know soldiers of love you know but it's still soldiers you know really erect really disciplined really unified uh, very focused you know, so it's not sort of, it's a very communal process of santodami It's not um, like like the more neo-shamanic ayahuasca circles where it's, you have the the shaman who's sort of leading with his, his or her assistants, and then everyone else sort of lies down very passively, uh, you know, just sort of soaking it in, in essence, right? Um, with this Santana, everyone's sort of a shaman. Or, you know, in a well, sense everyone's that, you certainly
3: know. expected to participate yeah. and to kind of hold their own, like you said, yeah. um, uh, kind of contain their energy um, to not disrupt other people's inner work, right, or the flow of the ritual, until it comes to mediumship, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is an aspect that I think <laughs> is specific with Padrino Sebastiao's line. And so it's somewhat controversial, I think, with the more traditional uh, Santo Daime people. Uh, But, you know, I've been exposed to it. And uh, I mean, the first work where I experienced mediumship was um, a a giant work, actually, it was February 2nd. So it was Iemanja's day. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it was a celebration of Iemanja and jonathan goldman and his wife jane were leading it mm-hmm. so people had come from all around for this big special uh, celebratory work yeah and <laughs> you know halfway through maybe i don't know when but all of a sudden some people start getting up and running around the salau. and one woman i remember she was running up and down the halls outside like screaming like a little kid out in the yeah, yeah. playground and yeah, yeah. i was like this is wild I have, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. I was not, you know, I was not prepared. I did not expect it. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was something I really had to um, live with, uh, wrestle with, try to understand what was going on and if it was helpful, if it was yeah. useful. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm still kind of ambivalent about it in terms of um, coming down on one side or the other but man definitely a unique experience
2: (laughs) for sure right uh yeah ye manja was queen of the sea and you know one of the what they call the orishas the uh uh, deities the from that came from west africa from the yoruba tradition right that you know and so she's the one that is linked with cleansing and and often healing and sort of bringing that maternal the divine goddess sort of energy into the mm,
3: creative principle i think she's called yeah. in one of the hymns yeah
2: Yeah. right and, and into the salal that sort of the ritual space and um so yeah you know in the book probably i'd say a third of the book right is focused on my talking and thinking through this issue of mediumship because it's so striking and um it's been a very important and significant Part of my own journey, my own spiritual journey, and so I really wanted to think it through. And and oh, it's a, it's a, like I say, it is controversial because like the alto santo people are adamantly against it, and even within our own line, there are certain churches that just don't do it much and are a little suspicious of it. And even in the churches that do do it, m- mediums are you know this Anto loves to have disciplined people who are controlling themselves and are very self-contained and upright and firm and clear and present and conscious, all those good things. A medium is someone that you, you don't know what's gonna happen, right? And so, while the mediums are like yeah this is so beautiful especially for a mediumistic work it's also sort of a a potential source of chaos a potential sort of uh, you don't it can you know like it can get out of hand maybe or something and so it's a there's a a, a type of ambivalence even in churches that that consciously and clearly embrace mediumship in terms of because they know it's sort of like a, it's there's a lot of learning and training to become a you to become a medium. And mm-hmm. the first early stages, it's often very wild. Yeah. And people's bodies and like the sounds they make and the movements they're making. And uh, there's this whole interplay between as, as Jonathan uh, mentions in the book, Jonathan Goldman, I remember I remember it so distinctly, I'm talking about that, like I say there's always three elements to mediumship there's um, uh, inspiration, ego and drama. Mm -hmm. sure yeah you want to link up more with the first and diminish the second two but there's always going to be some you know of those other two of ego and drama and because you know you're a human being and and so it's uh (laughs) but it's
3: well it's about um discernment right and exactly like trying to like well and one of the first uh, hymns that we would sing is called examine your conscience
2: yeah
3: and it comes out first and it's like kind of setting things up like so if you start to feel some energy taking you over and like you want to start physically expressing or vocally expressing it yeah. uh it's kind of up to you to examine your conscience and say where is this coming from you know is this some unintegrated part of myself that is being boisterous or wants attention or wants to feel special or is this authentic and i mean that's got to be like
2: just a constant examination
3: and uh, reconsideration
2: oh without a doubt and i mean i i know when i first started because the opposite can be true too Not the opposite, but there's sort of a flip side of that is that, like, I was very shy about these sort of things, and I did not want to do anything to disrupt anyone. I didn't, and yet there was another part of me that was like, um, I also wanted to honor those energies and those those beings. And part of my own sort of spiritual training before I even um, got into the daimy had to do with doing sort of neo Reichian um work to sort of free up the bodily armoring and things like this and Jonathan Goldman was also sort of
3: oh like uh, Wilhelm
2: Reich and uh, bioenergetics Mm -hmm. exactly right with like Alexander Lowen and that sort of that sort of training so Mm -hmm. I've been training and working with people and trying to help people in group settings to sort of open themselves up bodily because we as especially in you know in America we tend to be pretty um often, at least many people tend to be sort of locked down and locked tight energetically. Um, and, and so being not feeling very free to move and express themselves physically. And, and so, uh, so on the other hand, I was really appreciative of that freedom that was there in the works as a medium to be able to just experiment and let though not experiment, it's not quite because that's more conscious, but to let those energies play out. And um, but I w- I was really clear that I said like, it had to be a really clear like tug on the sleeve, like you need to get out there. I I said, I said, I do not want any, you know, to I don't want to be going in there exactly. I don't want to be like just showing off or get I wanted to make sure it was authentic, right? And I always have. Um but, you know but but when it gets in there then it then it can become pretty dramatic. <laughs> you know <laughs> you let it open up yeah. it's, like, it's it's uh it's often not um so I remember but but I, I write about this you know because my very first word with Jonathan was a very strongly a mediumistic work and that was my first exposure to the Santo Dynamy and I'm like, whoo, what is this a similar sort of thing. I didn't know what to expect, and there's like people crying and laughing, and you know, hooting and hollering, and exactly moving their bodies around, and I'm like, whoa, okay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I say, I have the same thing. This ain't your grandma's church. I know, know. or or maybe actually, in my case, it's sort of close because it's, it's 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 sort of like a. You know, Pentecostal Charismatic Christianity.
3: Right? Yeah, right. Which we don't have much of up here in Canada. So yeah. yeah
2: so I, I, my, my, my lineage is more like uh, up in the hills in North Carolina. You know, so well, like, we're snake.
3: mostly Protestants, So it's like the exact opposite <laughs> of that. Where... <laughs>
2: <laughs> so anyway, so it's uh, so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a very fascinating issue because what I. And I mean, obviously I wrote, you know, hundreds of pages about this, really, I'm not hundreds, but I mean, you know, at least a, a hundred pages on, about this very issue in the book, because it raises all sorts of issues around who we are as human beings, too.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because when you begin to feel this sort of like superimposition of different consciousnesses within your consciousness, that's fascinating. You know, so you could have works and I have works where I would be like, OK, here's my own sort of egoic consciousness. But then I'd feel also this presence of these beings of light, you know, these really, you know, who knows, but, but beings with a lot of love and, and, and compassion and clarity and light. You know, and so they'd be in my in, superimposed on my energetic field or my field, my consciousness. And then here in would come these what we call these suffering spirits, these disembodied beings who are seeking healing that are suffering and they're very contracted. And and so you've got these like th- at least three different levels simultaneously of coexisting consciousnesses within the one field of my own being. I'm like, what? you know, and then all the movements and whatever, Mm -hmm. which I I began to really appreciate because I like, I like a spirituality that's embodied. You know, I like the, uh, because, you know, another strand of my own um, spiritual background is sort of, uh, you know, tantric and yogic, right. And so Tantra is all about um spiritualization of every moment of existence and, and especially the spirituality spiritualization or the consecration or sacralization of the body right and so i write about this in the book too i don't make work too hard to you know i don't say that that uh the santa is tantric but it's there's a lot of fascinating overlaps in this way because it's a uh, both traditions uh, and i could i could actually list it several but certainly at least in the focus on the uh sacralization of the body it's mm-hmm. that's what i think mediumship at its highest is right it's your um, and it's a very um uh, because in the dying, especially when you're working with these suffering spirits it's like understood to be a um we, we call it giving charity you know so that it's like you're wanting to help these beings who are really suffering and helping them to move on, helping them to receive grace, helping them to feel love and unconditional forgiveness and things like this that they mm-hmm. often they really don't deserve. And uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful process of helping them to fr- become free and to receive that love and grace and to act as sort of, again, a medium as a, ch- as a vessel, as a channel for that process to happen
3: yeah Beautiful. well yeah uh thanks for that um i mean this is something that i've that i've wrestled with and i you know, like i said i'm still on the fence about it yeah. in terms of uh where i stand with my belief like one way to view this is that it's a literal incorporation of a disembodied spirit yeah. and it brings with it its own suffering its own consciousness its own experience and trauma and everything and it's uh coming into your body and you're experiencing it or working with it okay. the other way to view it is that well these are literalized uh aspects of myself that have been repressed that the uh, that the dime is helping to open my psyche up to and it's like psychedelic it's revealing something of my psyche that I've been unconscious of yeah. uh, so kind of I guess you would say like ontologically, you could have these two different viewpoints, like yeah. what's actually going on here, yeah, um but where I've just kind of come into acceptance about it all and acceptance of my ambivalence is well, i don't think it really matters at the end of the day, um in the experience, I experience it as literally real as literally happening, and I just found it's best to go with it, like to, I think Jung would say to act as if, like when working with archetypal figures from dreams or imagination, like try to put aside your literal, rational thinking mind, and act as if, and that's going to have the healing benefit for your overall psyche. So that's where I'm at with it. I mean, have you, you know, come to a place where you feel strongly one way or the other?
2: no actually i don't because uh i and i write that's part of all this my writing in the book is trying to as i i I really wrestle with that exact issue um and because i i'm always i tend to be sort of a paradoxical both and thinker and so i have no trouble saying that it's both and i do think it's actually both and way beyond anything that because, you know, we're trying to, I stress this a lot too, with both the the visionary mystical experiences and mediumship. We're playing in areas where, like I give this analogy of like a, uh, I actually give two analogies. One would be like a a goldfish is scooped out of its little bowl and it's just flopping around in someone's hand, some giant's hand. And it's like, doesn't know what the hell's going on, you know, it just, and then finally gets put back in a safe little, Confines of what, what it's we're sort of like that in these these experiences. You know, there's this whole other vast realm, and this is, I'm sure of multi-dimensional universe that we just get little tiny peaks into, either through the visionary experiences, sort of like ascending into those worlds or with mediumship that those worlds, those energies are descending into us or arising from within us. Whatever but they're always arising within us, right? And so there does always have to be, I think, something within us that is resonant with all those different levels of energy. And there has to be, you know, so that I think like with the suffering spirits, for instance, what I've noticed is that I'll have a little something, you know, I mean, some maybe, you know, maybe it's more than little, but certainly there's a a landing place, there's an opening for that, what feels like a very strongly other being to come in.
3: Right, Um, yeah. So if I have uh, some repressed anger in my heart, I might attract a quote-unquote suffering spirit that wants Mm -hmm. to express anger and rage through me.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
3: Exactly, right or and, addiction and, or, or or uh grief all of that that's what you're talking exactly, about yeah. exactly
2: right and so who knows at what because one thing i will say is I, I do think that we are multidimensional, without a doubt and so whether and so the issue is like even we say like it's almost like just from our subconscious like we don't know how far and how deep our subconscious goes into mm. you start looking at these Jungian archetypes these archetypal energies coming in Jung would even talk about them as, you know, having their own, you know, their own intention, their own, they initiate these, they, they, they're what bring up the dreams. They're Yeah, he
3: would say it, that they're autonomous, 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 that they're like God-sized energies. So he didn't downplay. Um,
2: so, you so, know, so. what what's self, what's other, it becomes a real fascinating investigation. And you, with the Santo Daime, you get to actually, be your own body and mind becomes the laboratory where you get to really experiment and experience these things it's not just reading about it from a distance and that's yeah the, right
3: that's one of the reasons why i was so attracted to it and uh, I, I stuck with it for a while is because like i saw it as the only uh, real christian uh mystery school that was like still around and active and had a sacrament that actually worked to do what it's supposed to do right <laughs> and so it's like it's very gnostic in that way like it's about uh knowing for yourself or or not knowing but at least experiencing for yourself exactly.
2: Exactly. So that's a good that's a good that's a good distinction i like that you know because the other the other thing the other analogy i was given about for the not knowing i like, give in the book is from william james and he's saying it's like you know a dog coming into a library, the dog sees <laughs> the same books they does not have a clue they don't have a clue what a books are or more or less what words and meanings are, right
3: yeah, like if a dog could speak, he'd be like, "Well, what do I do with this?" I know <laughs> like, right kind of so, what we do with our experiences sometimes, right
2: kind of like that, you know we're in this whole vast, mysterious universe, and we're doing our best,
3: well, yeah, I appreciate um you know what you how you've written about it in the book now would you say that there are some inherent dangers to experimenting with mediumship um and you could speak specifically about doing it within the container of the daimie or outside of it up to you
2: um well uh you know I, it's a really good question, um, and it's a valid question. It's a worthwhile question exploring, and um, I, I just tend to be a little careful with it because while I think it's good for people to be careful, I think people already have so much fear around this issue, at least some people, that I don't want to stoke that fear. You know what I'm saying? Um, because I I feel personally, and this is... And, there are people who would disagree with me about this but my own experience has been within the container of the Santo Daime work with working with people that are very well trained medium that mediums that know what to do with this that know how to bring in a lot of light and protection you know from these higher beings from these from these uh, beings of light and know how to work with this and, and how to work with people in their process and to help to train mediums like like Bashinya did with Jonathan and now Jonathan's doing and you know other people as well. I felt completely safe with it. And and I especially with the sacrament, you know, like I've had some conversations on online with people who basically say, you know, it's the last thing you want to do is to do all this mediumship stuff. And, and then you throw in that you know, hallucinogenic on top of it. And it just makes it worse. And I'm like, to me, it's like, that's what makes me feel much safer, actually, because the dime, I feel just like whatever is bringing up, being brought up is, is being brought up in the context of, a. to me, like the daimy is not just a chemical it's our set of chemicals. It's a it's the physical. It's a true sacrament. So it's a it's a physical embodiment of a spiritual consciousness of of seemingly infinite proportion. I have no idea how huge the di- for us when in the Santa Diami, it's literally bringing in, It's incarnating the spirit of the Christ, right? That's big, and so I feel very safe when I'm working with that because I've got that sort of with me protecting me holding me right uh, but I, I that's my own experience you know other people that they i do think that you know um there might be people what i have no because wh- this is a whole discussion within the Santra dining um what I, the the only people I think that should not be involved with the Santo Dime or should not be drinking Dime are people with severe mental health issues. By severe, meaning like tendencies towards you know psychosis, schizophrenia, or bipolar, or maybe even borderline personalities. You know that's not. The ideal sort of person that you, i think maybe even they i would i would say even they if you had an extremely structured 24-hour residential situation could probably still benefit from it but most people don't have that right and so you add mediumship into the mix for pe- someone like that that's not ideal mm-hmm. right but i don't think it's ideal for them to be drinking dime period mm-hmm. And um, so that's the that's the main area of concern I would have. Yeah, um, you know, you can't always predict that, right? Well,
3: yeah, that's kind of one of the criticisms uh, of even uh, having any kind of open mediumship happening is that it might uh, bring out something that's been latent in someone, uh, especially with the powerful sacrament. you know, and I, I think, like for me, like one of the dangers is actually of literalism.
2: Yeah,
3: I remember going to a work, and there was a young man there who had the kind of standard, stereotypical Christ complex.
2: Yeah,
3: uh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like he literally thought that uh, he had opened himself in a work to christ consciousness and that he was then the incarnation of christ
2: yeah
3: yeah and i think some of that belief was supported in the community Uh, Mm. i think there is a tendency because of belief
1: yeah
3: to uh take things literally and i feel like that young man could have benefited from a, a talk about deliteralizing it and talking about how maybe what he's experiencing was his potential for Christ consciousness in himself and that he wasn't literally yeah. the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't hear that conversation happening. And yeah. so I had misgivings about that and concerns about that, and wondering how prevalent that kind of thing actually is.
1: Yeah, yeah I
3: agree. But there's also something about the way that it was handled. So he was allowed into the work, but he wasn't given any dime for that uh-huh. work.
2: Uh-huh. But
3: there was, I guess, the belief that um, by being in the presence of others and being in the ritual ceremony that he would receive any healing that uh, he may have needed. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was, you know, one experience that yeah. I don't think is completely uncommon. So yeah. just, I'd love your thoughts on that.
2: Oh, I've, it's such a beautiful, insight and comment and sort of sad too, because I do, I write about this in the book. Um, I think that, and not only with the Santo diametrician with any tradition that's working with psychedelic substance, even just on a therapeutic healing level, that the potential for grandiosity and inflation is huge. Mm-hmm. Just is, And so it needs to be really openly, overtly talked about, and there needs to be, um, It needs to be addressed skillfully when it arises and um you know um i i i mean i'm basically i completely agree with you with that um it's it's something that because it's it's you know i mean and it's 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 understandable i don't i don't um even there i think that there's if it's handled skillfully, it's just sort of a bump on the road. It's just part of the learning process, right? It's not at the end of it. It's not like, you know, ideally someone has this beautiful experience of their connection with the Christ or with God and, and that their oneness. I mean, that's a whole, you know, thing with the Eastern traditions, right? You know, of that, you know, the sense of experiential union or identity with with this divine source right and that's sort of the end point or at least the one of the goals of lots of these you know mystical traditions and so it's something that i think on the one hand is 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 good to nurture but it but you're right when it becomes linked in with the ego then it gets to be really problematic and so it's it's like i remember um i'm sure well you may have Um, the book "Be Here Now" by Ram Dass and spiritual teacher, right? And he talks about his brother who was um, institutionalized and Jesus and stuff like something similar. And and Ram Dass making the point that it's like the difference between my brother and me is that he thought only I am Jesus, right? Whereas a mystic is where yes, I am the Christ, but so are you. And so the crisis in everything and in everyone, right? And, that, and, that's, a, and that, that, that's a huge difference. And um, I, do, I think that what you find it, at its best in the Santo Dime is this interplay between wondrous experiences of connection to these different strata of divinity, combined with a real emphasis at its best on humility. You know, and on like we're really we're just we're a work in progress, right? We're doing our best. And you know, so mm, you know, I don't know. I mean, I probably would have I have a lot of faith in the power of a, the healing potential of a Santo Dami work. Um, I probably would have also, I think I also have a lot of faith in for certain people, the need for them to have. Good one-on-one therapy from mm. a skilled therapist, right?
3: Yeah.
2: And uh, I mean, seriously. I, and and many Diamista friends of mine, for instance, go to f- do that work. Because and, they- and
3: maybe not a conventional psychotherapist, but someone more like um, a spiritual counselor who can can walk in both worlds and and yeah. speak the language of both and with yeah. them.
2: Yeah, at least a psychotherapist that is conversant in and open to the power of plant medicines. and
3: Yeah, well, and I think who also has an understanding of like archetypal psychology too, to understand the power of these forces. Uh, exactly. Like, um, I know when some people, they'll just they'll psychologize these kind of experiences, right? And it will be, well, of course you had this experience, but it's a part of your own psyche. And it was uh, intensified by the hallucinogen that you'd taken. <laughs> so of course it's gonna seem wholly real and, and not of yourself and all of that kind of thing. But I, you know, I can't help but think that that almost is a way to defend against the numinosity of the experience, which is a word that you use, it comes from uh, Otto. Yeah, but it's meant to point to something that's so terribly vast and unknowable, uh,
1: the mysterium
3: tremendum of the divine experience. And like Jung said, any encounter with the numinous is experienced as a defeat by the ego. So (laughs) I see sometimes how like psychology, even like depth psychology, or archetypal psychology can be used as a kind of defense against these incredible experiences that i think anyone who spent enough time um in those realms will just have to say
2: like end up with the i don't really know
3: yeah yeah yeah,
2: you know? yeah well, so, you know, I, I would hope it it's it's a combination of i've had amazing insights and i don't know what the world just happened yeah <laughs> yeah you know what I'm saying? Well, Again, there's that both and that i think at its at best because because i think it's good to be able to sort of say that to, to acknowledge that you we can have definite um you know what james called noetic insights into profound downloads into the nature of reality the nature of the mysterium tremendum because we we are part of that we're not like cut off from it that's our to my mind our aspect of our of our true nature really of our birthright yeah, yeah exactly right and, and we we want to be growing into that right and, and and to have enormous sense of we're just like scratching on the frost of the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's
2: Stay real humble let's stay real like I, we're, we're growing we're doing our best and with god's grace and the grace of the goddess and the divine mother we'll we'll keep moving <laughs> you yeah. know
3: well uh, and like um when the rubber hits the road how how is it benefiting your life and what kind of person are you in yeah. your life right yeah. like i don't care what someone's uh, theology or what their beliefs are for me it's all about well how do they show up in the world what kind of contribution are they making um is their spiritual practice whatever it is how crazy it might seem to me i don't care if it's like kind of working for them
2: you yeah, know exactly no i mean that's what, in the book i give a i give a real actually pretty long chapter about that very issue because i think it's so central you know because it's like and how do we evaluate the complexities of evaluating is it working and what are the criteria by which we we look at that right and so this is where, you know, because a lot of the book I'm drawing upon, of course, my background with William James and Bergson, and James actually has a whole thing about that, which he, which he talks about in the varieties, It's sort of like proto-pragmatism, in essence, right, where he gives these three criteria of, you know, assessing the value and validity of, of a mystical experience, right, and the first one is immediate luminosity, which is like the immediate, like, sort of force direct force of the of that m- mystical experience which you, he takes very seriously as a source of you know like that, that that it's if it's that strong you have to take it seriously but then he talks about philosophical reasonableness which is sort of saying okay i've had this experience can i make sense of it within a broader philosophical framework and done by "phil," it doesn't mean like you know necessarily explicitly but you know, like just what we're doing—we're trying to put words to it. We're trying to make a, a coherent set of explanations and put meaning to it. And and, and can it be like that, articulated in that way? Um, and then third, which is goes directly to your point, is like so what he calls moral helpfulness, which is Victorian prose for he doesn't mean like you know moral codes or things like that. Which is maybe. Part in terms of, you, would hope you become a more ethical person or a good person, basically. But also, like, basically, he says, like, do you and do you see yourself and your community on the whole and over the long run, which is a two important sort of qualifiers, getting better, right? So on the whole, growing as your community, getting better. Over the long run, like so, maybe you're going to feel like you're going getting worse in the beginning, you know, but over on the long run, are you is it there's a there's a is it the telos is the thrust is the are you can you feel a movement towards getting better? And I don't think anyone would stay in a spiritual path unless they felt that was the case, right? And then how they make the case, make that well, that's
3: the thing is that they can
2: lose perspective, exactly right. And that—that's why the philosophical reasonable is becomes really important because you want to be really clear and conscious and thoughtful and and begin to sort of like examine other possibilities and and that's as part of what I wrote the book for right is to begin to sort of like say it's important to have these conversations you know and and, and I and I really appreciate actually a lot of the dimistas we talk with each other a lot you know and and because and and like trying to digest what's going on and people tend to be diabetes tend to be a little reticent about sharing their own experiences and i think rightfully so you don't be like grandiose somebody about it again it's just you know keep very private very sacred um but still there needs to be and again i talk about this in the book that there's a value of 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 that sort of give and take of conversation where people bounce ideas off each other. And so that can help to sort of um, keep people from being too solipsistic and isolated in their self-understandings, right? Mm.
3: Yeah, that was a a main difference between um, Sento Daimi and, uh, you know, the way ayahuasca is And usually drunk at like a retreat center in the Amazon or probably up here, too, although I've never done that, but, you know, a common element of the neo shamanic or even if it's kind of like indigenous traditional Shapibo, but it's usually done in a westernized context, right, which brings yeah. its own stuff to it. But a part of that is the sharing circle after the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And after sitting through dozens and dozens of those while I was working in a center, um, you know, I'm not sure that's the best way to, uh, quote unquote, integrate your experience is sharing it with a large group of people where it's really a monologue. I I thought that that brought out a lot of the grandiosity that you're talking about here or the, you know, um, making things like quite dramatic and maybe getting stuck in your your story about how things are like it's solipsism within a group context because people wouldn't get challenged or asked about things. On the other hand, in the dime, what was nice is that there was uh, always time for communal gathering after these long works where you'd have a potluck and people yeah. would maybe um, pair up or go off in little groups, but mm-hmm. you'd end up having these conversations about like, what the hell just happened there? Or did you have this kind of experience? And you know, for me, going to people with more experience and, and bouncing things off them, Um, I always found an attitude of uh, like a a non-dogmatic attitude toward hearing me out and offering some reflections on things. In the end, what was always the case in my experience was people valuing uh, the reality of my experience and and maybe just offering some helpful tips or guidance along the way to um, help me make some sense of that or make some good use of it i think yeah. so it's a very yeah. different approach like not the same kind of focus on telling your story and talking about all the details of your wild experience yeah. the night before yeah. that was actually seemed like it was um uh not
2: encouraged so much it, it depends you know like i you, you probably saw it some like in my first works with jonathan for instance he would you know with those they're a little more they would have those sharing circles. And um, with Pedrinho Alex, when I went, I did a retreat with him down in uh, Malwa in the mountains outside of, of Um And he would do those occasionally. And I found those very valuable in the sense that if you have a skilled person who's running them and, and who can and will work to sort of work with the person and 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 you know challenge their story and you know keep them on track and things like that and then i found it really helpful because you know it's it, it's valuable sometimes to get insights from someone who's really had a lot of depth of experience and they can sort of shine a light onto things and um but i also like and i, and I talk about this in the book i also do very much value just i think i think you said it so beautifully that sort of just real casual sort of after work, just just talking. And, um, and I sometimes, sometimes though, sometimes, I, I, I sort of feel a little, um, in my in my participation with Sandra Dior, I sort of wish there was a little more time actually for it, because sometimes, because, you know, sometimes these works go really late, and people just they want to just put it up and go home, you know, tired, yeah. Right. you know, and so, uh, so the what happens though even then you be, because and this is something that I talk about this is why it's a religion right and a religion creates a community and a community bounces off each other for you know and they talk to each other and they squabble and they there's a whole there's a, a there's a friction and a support that's that's both sides are, i think extremely valuable for for growth actually. Yeah, so.
3: and, and the, the community is an organism that's yeah. dynamic, but I think will uh, be self-correcting ultimately, mm-hmm. right, so a lot of those kind of personal disagreements um, kind of get ironed out if the community sticks together and has that commitment to stay together.
2: No, oh, exactly, right, because they almost have to, right, yeah. and It gets messy at times, and, but that's just part of the process, and you, it's a, a way to learn, like, how can I come back to my heart? How can I let go of my anger? How can I really uh, forgive and allow myself to be forgiven? And how can I receive correction? How can I, you know, not be so nice and have to give some pointers to someone or all those sort of dynamics that are extremely important and really healing and -hmm. for a community and personally, I think,
3: you know? Yeah. Especially a human being who's trying to recover the ability to live in community again after being you know in these isolated little nuclear yeah. families and you know I more know. and more atomized existence <laughs> good point <laughs> uh, this is this is like one okay one more thing I think that's connected to this uh that I wanted to talk with you about, and then I think we could wrap it up there but sure. so hmm. How do I want to get into this? How do I want to lay this in there? Um, <laughs> yeah, because it has to do with community. Do I want to go there?
1: <laughs>
3: I, I, this is one of those parts that I edit out as I wrestle with Sure, it. sure, What's sure. has the sure, sure. way into this. Yeah, sure. um, I think I'm... I think I'm going to leave it actually because it might open up things too much and uh I don't want to just kind of leave something out there hanging that uh you know I want to do justice to.
2: Sure, sure, sure. You know, and there's all these uh I mean to me it's like I, I we've covered a ton, right? I mean, yeah. I think if um if there's anything that uh you know like from the book for sure that I, that we didn't cover that I don't think would be important and you know, I mean, I think that um, one of the things, because the whole, the end of the book, really, it, it all sort of points towards the, yeah, there's, a, there's a sort of a momentum that happens in the book, right? And it's it's leading towards the end of the book, which is, and I consciously wanted to end with this, um, the discussion of divinization. Um, because it's like, what's the goal of, of all this? What's the end point? And why are we doing this? Right. And 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 of course, there's no just one answer to that. Everyone's gonna have their own answer to that. But when I talked to both Padrino Alex Polari, and, and when I interviewed him and several several interviews actually, and then also this woman who runs this place called the Santa Casa in Sal in de Mapia, which to me was one of the most beautiful. Holy, holy Santa Casa means like holy house, and it's very, very much felt that way these beautiful works most mornings there um that i participated in and isabel Barceo was sort of one of the founders of this and so i interviewed the two of them and talked to them about this what's the goal of this and they both felt it was to it's uh, it's all beautiful that everyone has their own level of working and their own sense of, of where we're heading and and what 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 it means to be a, a good daimista right um But for them, it meant awakening to that I am principle within and the the divine self within and and beginning to link up with that and to embody that as much as possible within your own body and mind um, so that you become a conduit of these divine energies of these divine qualities of, of basic you know light and um forgiveness and compassion and wisdom and you know all these divine energies um which is talked about in in early christianity is divinization
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? and so again just it's a to me, that's really sort of the goal of, of the Santo Daimi is for each of us to, within our own unique way, like you were talking about very early, that sort of, which I'd love, that sort of the, our own sort of prismatic angle to that, that light, to embody that, right? And to be a vehicle of those energies of healing, of, of insight, of compassion in this world that so desperately needs Right, and so,
3: yeah, and to continually kind of polish that yeah. facet, so yeah. things that divine light comes through more clearly and is not uh, blocked or obscured or distorted in some way
2: exactly right and 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 to be that have that sort of very clear self examination that can happen and uh. Examine
3: okay. a conscience.
2: Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <That thing laughs> yeah. Right there. First hymn of the night. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, that's great. I mean, for me, it was like it was summed up so clearly and beautifully in the symbolism of the crucero, this double barred cross that yeah. is the central symbol of the is, you know on every altar and you've got one there behind you but the way it was explained to me early on was that that second horizontal bar of the cross represents the second coming of christ which is meant to happen in the hearts of all humanity and would be facilitated through this particular sacrament and i mean god Sounds good to me, man like, no, no,
0: seriously, right
2: <laughs> yeah, <Maybe> like, so <laughs> whatever,
3: yeah, whatever the way to that is, I can stand behind that uh yeah. that uh, aspiration
2: or that doctrine for sure, No, no, for sure, and then and like you said, with that exam exam examine your conscience, you know like Magin- Maginia, he doesn't examine your conscience. it's the first lesson of Pepatial you know that's him we were singing of his, and it's like. It's such a prevalent understanding. And it's fascinating too, this is a small little thing, but to me it's fascinating because I, I love Portuguese. And Portuguese in the Portuguese, consciência means both conscience and consciousness. So exa- examine your conscience It's the first lesson. Like you often how it's translated with Madrinha Hita. but it also means examine your consciousness, examine the depths of your consciousness, right? And 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 I think with Petrino Sebastial and Patrignano, it's it's clear that it's both, right? And so it's it, it had this sort of dual thing where it's like on the one hand, like you know, really check in with what your conscience is saying about how you should live your life in an upright sort of good way, but also look in the depths of your own consciousness to find that divine source and and keep looking there, you know. In, in those, mm. So I, I just love that, you know.
3: Yeah, so. I love that too. I love those kind of double meanings. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, I
3: wasn't aware of that actually. It's yeah, really yeah.
2: Nice. It has it has a a, a simultaneity there of meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, (laughs)
3: Yeah, because, you know, the way I kind of shorthand think of conscience is like the inner voice of God uh, Mm -hmm. that can be corrective and um, can sound judgmental and critical, like patriarchal. uh, But it's trying to keep you living in a in a right way. Um, Mm -hmm. That's how I help people try to distinguish between that and some other unhelpful part of the psyche or more. um, I don't know.
2: the superego
3: sort of stuff which is yeah but for me yeah right yeah the abusive father or something like that or yeah um but in the hymn it says examine your conscience and if i'm thinking about conscience in that way it's like not really mine so it makes sense to me that um it also means consciousness
2: or examine your mind right yeah no exactly so it has both meanings and 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 because the english you have to sort of pick one and it often the translations say conscience and so i'm like so my back of my mind going what also means this other thing it is really important <laughs> right yeah just don't look
3: to uh the big daddy in the sky for guidance but exactly you
2: know, correct exactly, yourself right? right exactly exactly right a, and find, find that divine source within find that connection you know within you and and you know way beyond you i mean but but within your depths for sure within your heart
3: yeah well yeah. bill this has been really great and um yeah, sure, Brian. like i said i've been wanting to talk about this for years now uh but you know for reasons that we discussed it can be hard to find people within the tradition who want to speak about it openly or talk about their experience because you know, there's the issues of humility and proselytization. And so I think it took someone like you, who's an academic, Mm -hmm. uh, but also an insider to be able to come forward and and speak about it in a really kind of personal way, but also uh, has a a good understanding of um, all the different aspects of it and the tradition and everything. So I I think it worked out perfectly. I had to wait, you know, four
2: years, but that's that's cool. (laughs) Oh, it's been a delight seriously to talk with you, just a delight. And uh, these sort of conversations mean so much to me personally. And, and as I feel so privileged and honored to be able to you know, be a catalyst for these conversations and to be able to sort of just participate and learn and it's a, it's a sort of infinity sign of, of giving and receiving and learning and teaching that, that happens in these conversations that I just find really uplifting and, and helpful.
3: Yeah, that's great so the website is uh liquidlightbook.com yes
2: Mm -hmm. yes exactly
3: and there everyone's gonna like we talked about find all kinds of resources about the santo daimi if you want to find out more and um you know how to follow along with what you're doing i guess
2: yeah and also you can get a 20 percent off buying the book from columbia university press there's a code on there that that, that's there so
3: that that's good because those academic presses they like to Overcharge <laughs> for their books.
2: Well, I don't know about overcharge because they, they 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 have to somehow make money somehow because these, these guys are really but but you're right, they're sometimes like pricey
3: <laughs> Yeah, I went to buy uh someone I had on the podcast went to buy one of his books on Kindle, and the Kindle edition of his book was like sixty-five dollars, which was oh, that's where I get the overcharging thing. There's not even like the paper. Come on.
2: <laughs> oh, no, come on, come on. <laughs>
3: Oh, Bill, this has been great. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you down the road.
2: Okay, man. Blessings Take to you. Bye. Blessings. Bye-bye.
0: The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.